All right. Last week, we started looking at the atheistic argument against God's existence, known as the problem of evil. With evil defined, just so we can remember, as the fact of suffering, misfortune, and wrongdoing in the world. And we differentiated, as you recall, between the emotional problem of evil, which deals with feelings of resentment and bitterness towards God due to the evil in the world, and the intellectual problem that focuses more on the question of whether God and evil can, in fact, coexist. And if you remember, we actually broke it down even further and looked at two versions of the intellectual problem, um, the logical and the probabilistic. And last week, we spent the majority of our time together looking at the logical version, which, when stated in syllogistic form, looks something like this. Statement one, an omnipotent, omnibenevolent God exists. Statement two, evil exists. And the logical problem of evil then says statements one and two are contradictory. Therefore, since evil undeniably exists, God must not. Now, we showed, however, that statements one and two are not actually contradictory, and that for, for there to be conflict between them, the atheists would need to prove uh, their uh, assumptions that God, namely, A, could uh, make any world he wanted to, and B, that he preferred a world without evil in it over a world with evil. Um, but as we discovered, the atheist is, in the end, unable to prove those assumptions necessarily true, thus causing this version of the argument, at least, to fail in its purpose. So that's what we went over in a very brief nutshell. If you were not able to hear uh, last week's message, I would encourage you to go back and spend some time listening to it so that you can be caught up to where we are today. Uh, and for this week, we are still left with the probabilistic version of the problem of evil. The argument that while it is logically possible that God and evil can coexist, one, the extent and depth of evil in the world is so great that it is improbable that God could have morally sufficient reasons for permitting it. And two, therefore, given the evil in the world, it is improbable that God exists. This is more careful wording than the last problem we looked at. Moral evil, natural evil, it just runs too deep. There's too much of it. And so there, there can't be good enough reasons for God to allow it. So since it's here, then, well, it's just improbable he exists. Now, before we respond to this, I want to just press pause and think briefly about the perceived dichotomy between moral and natural evils. Um, much of what we've been talking about uh, so far has been centered around man and his immoral choices, actions that we take as God's free creatures that are evil or that result in evil in one way or another. Things like murder, uh, rape, robbery, hatred, jealousy, and so on. Uh, th these things, things that are most 
uh, most uh, visible, the most visible direct result of our rebellion against God's law. But that's not the only kind of evil out there, right? Uh, there are other sources of suffering and pain in the world, natural evils like hurricanes. That should be front and center in our thoughts today. Um, disease, uh, floods, earthquakes, drought, and uh, famine. And the atheist will point to those things as part of their reasoning for the probabilistic argument. So it might be helpful to note that even if natural evil seems somehow removed from man's actions, man's choices, from the Christian theist's viewpoint, it still stems, it still comes from the same root cause as moral evil. It still stems from, from sin. You know, the world is not, is not how it was created to be. Consider with me, you know, the account of Genesis chapter 3. Man, man chose sin, and with that choice, the world was changed. Evil entered the picture. Suffering and pain and death became a reality. Verses 17 through 19 tells us that the earth was cursed because of sin. And from that day until the day Christ returns, Paul says in Romans 8, creation is suffering. It's waiting to be released from that bondage, to be set free from bondage to decay, he says. Romans 8, 20-22. So natural evil, it could be argued, is this suffering and decay that Paul is speaking of. And even though it was brought about by sin in the first place, even as it was brought about by sin in the first place, it can also be affected, it can be exacerbated by moral evil, still. Like last week, for example, we mentioned the, the Ukraine and the thousands that are currently, who are currently dying there from man's wrongdoing. The moral evil of, of murder and, and suffering that's taking place there right now in the immediate, it doesn't end there. There is a, by all accounts, there is going to be a ripple effect that spans out from there. And by all accounts, one such effect is going to be a global food shortage. Now, that might make bread more expensive here on our shelves, but in a very real, very possible way, it could lead to prolonged, a prolonged season of famine and starvation in poorer countries around the world. So sometimes moral evil can still exacerbate natural evil. Now, clearly that's not always the case, but I just want, wanted to make the point that for our purposes this morning, I don't think it's a stretch to argue that both types of evil, moral and natural, share commonality in being linked to man's sinful choices. And so, and so for the sake of grappling with the probabilistic argument, I don't think we need to be focused on splitting hairs between the two types of evil. All we really need to, to think and to ask this morning is this. Is the extent and depth of all evil in the world so great that it's probable, that it's improbable, God has morally sufficient reasons for permitting it? So I'm going to ask that again, because really that's the crux of our discussion this morning. Is the extent and depth of all evil in the world so great that it's improbable 
God has morally sufficient reasons for permitting it. Now, there are a few ways that we can respond to this question, so I hope that you will follow carefully with me through this. And uh, we're going to be leaning heavily uh, on some of the, the reasoning that comes from a Christian philosopher and apologist whom many of you are very familiar with here, William Lane Craig. Now, first of all, before we decide, this is be our first, first question, first response. Before we decide what's probable and improbable, we need to make sure that we are considering all of the evidence that is available to us. Uh, in the probabilistic argument, the atheist acts like evil is the only evidence that we have for or against God. And if they were right, if evil was the only evidence for God, then we absolutely would have a problem. It would, be, it would be pretty hard to argue for his existence on the basis of the quantity of evil in the world alone. But is that all we have to work with? Is that all there is? Is evil all we have to consider when we think about the improbability of God's existence? Well, in short, the answer is no, right? What's been the purpose of this whole apologetic series we've been engaged in the last weeks. It's to look at all sorts of evidence and all sorts of arguments in favor of God's existence. And think of all the evidence that we've seen so far. Think of the, of the cosmological evidence for the Creator, of evidence for causation and contingency, for, for intelligent design. Think of the reality of objective moral values, as Nate shared a couple weeks ago. You know, if we want to make an educated decision on the probability of God's existence, we can't look at just one factor like evil. We have to consider all of them, right? All of the evidence, both for and against the probability of God's existence. And as Craig puts it, when we do this, when we take into account the full scope of evidence, then the existence of God becomes quite probable. Now, the next response we would give is, is actually more of a question. What about the idea that we can somehow judge God's reasoning? If God's existence is quite probable, as Craig puts it, how confident can we really be that God doesn't have morally sufficient reasons for permitting evil to the extent that he has permitted it? You know, instead of trying to objectively quantify evil somehow as our basis for attacking God, which brings up all sorts of questions of its own, what we might better do, what we might better ask is, who are we? And how are we to adequately judge the improbability of God having sufficient reasoning for permitting evil in any amount? Especially when we think about the limitations of our perspective in comparison to God's. You know, God who is transcendent, who is above and beyond our physical human uh, experience. You know, God who is not bound by time or by 
short-sightedness uh, and who is infinitely wise and just and can see the end all the way from the beginning. Is it really that improbable that a sovereign God could choose to put up with evil for a time or to use it for his purposes? The tough question is, you know, how, how do we find an elevated enough place of judgment from which to discern that probability? How do we get a high enough vantage point to see all that he sees and make that call? And this really is, as Craig points out, a big problem with the probabilistic version of evil in that it just assumes too much about our ability to discern God's motives and reasoning. The fact of the matter is that we are limited. We are finite in our perspective. And this is the part in our discussion, in this argument, where the Christian worldview really comes into play. Because as Christians, God has not chosen to leave us in the dark. Um, he's chosen to instead reveal himself and his purposes to us through his word. He has spoken to us and he has given understanding and insight to those who would receive it that not only increases the probability of his existence in the face of evil, but also equips us to appropriately respond to evil when we encounter it, when we see it experience it. So you see, unlike the atheists who really has no explanation for the existence of evil, the Christian knows evil for what it is, the fruit of mankind's rebellion against God. And as David writes in Psalm 107, we have rebelled. Mankind has rebelled against God's word and has spurned the counsel of the Most High. We have declared our way the best way. And as we reap the fruit of that decision, some of it immediate, some of it later on, God is allowing us that free choice, and he is letting our depravity, as Paul says in Romans 1, run its course. So there's one source for evil. Furthermore, Craig argues that it's not just mankind in rebellion, but also what he calls the realms of beings, the realm of beings higher than man. Those whom which Paul refers to as principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world, all in rebellion against God, all striving endlessly against his work and his purposes. So it's a war, and evil is part of that war. So the Christian thus informed is not confused, is not blindsided or shocked by evil, doesn't view evil as this random unexplained, terrible thing, but actually knows exactly what it is and exactly what it's about. It's the fruit of our own free decisions in a world that is marred by sin and rebellion against God. So you can see how within this biblical worldview, within this understanding, within the framework of free will, the existence of both God and evil seems more probable. But it doesn't end there. 
The Christian's also been given another important tool for understanding and dealing appropriately with evil. And that's a biblical perspective on the true purpose of life. Now, if you were to Google search, in fact, I challenge you to Google search this because it's a wild ride. If you were to Google search, what is the purpose of life? You'll find all types of tips and hints and strategies. And if you spend enough time on it, as I did, for your sakes, (laughs) you will find that it usually boils down to a few key things. Happiness, success, longevity. Those aren't bad things, but are they the purpose of life? Well, maybe in the world's opinion, maybe according to Google, but not according to God's word. Not according to Solomon, who wrote in Ecclesiastes 12 that the whole duty of man is to fear God and to keep his commandments. The psalmist uh, Asaf would agree with him as well. He takes it even further, believing that our purpose is found where? It's found in relationship with God. Crying out in Psalm 73, Who do I have in heaven but you? I desire nothing on earth besides you. What about Paul? There's an achiever for you. A guy who had success and knowledge and power, and he would have been the poster child for the world's standard of purposeful life. But what does he say about all those things, about all of his accomplishments, all that purpose he'd garnered for himself? What did he say in Philippians 3, 1 through 10? He said, no, that's, that's all trash. All my success and passion and pursuits, it's rubbish. Nothing compared to knowing Jesus, compared to being found in him and counted righteous through him. There's our purpose. Craig writes, One reason that the problem of evil seems so puzzling is that we tend to think that if God exists, then his goal for human life is happiness in this world. That his role is to provide a comfortable environment for his human pets. But in the Christian view, this is false. We are not God's pets, and man's end is not happiness in this world, but the knowledge of God, which will ultimately bring true and everlasting human fulfillment. Without God, evil would be completely pointless. If happiness and wealth and health, if living a long time was our legitimately our only goals in life, then evil would be the absolute end all, wouldn't it? It'd be a cataclysmic source of despair for us when we encountered it, signifying nothing but the horrible, outrageous, and meaningless antithesis of all of our self-created purpose in life. But if we understand that our true purpose is to know God, to grow in the knowledge of Him, and to become more like His Son, even in His experience and example of suffering, then all of a sudden we're able to look at evil and we're able to say, 
Maybe. Maybe even in the immense pain of this, in the horribleness of this, my life isn't compromised. My purpose in life isn't compromised. Maybe despite what I'm experiencing, I can still stand and grow in the knowledge of God and become more like his son. Maybe all is not lost. And if we take scripture at its word, when it speaks of growth and refinement through suffering, then we can hang on to the hope that when we experience evil, um, when we experience it, it can, it can serve, even if we don't see it in the moment, somehow, some way, someday, as the catalyst for our growth. Not because God has to use it, but because he can use it. As Paul writes in Romans 8.28, In all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Craig writes, Innocent human suffering provides an occasion for deeper dependency and trust in God, either on the part of the sufferer or those around him. Of course, whether God's purpose is achieved through our suffering will depend on our response. Do we respond with anger and bitterness toward God, or do we turn to him in faith for strength to endure? <clears throat> where God's truth is, where right perspective and right response are, where faith in Jesus is found, there we see evil not just lose its power to destroy, but also to potentially serve as a facilitator for tremendous growth, both in our lives and in the church. And better still, the story doesn't end there, right? The Christian knows that if God exists, then the pain of the moment is not all that there is. The Christian understands that God has eternal purposes and a final solution for evil. That there's something more, something beyond the evil that we experience now. We know that evil is not forever. We know that it will soon be gone. Death and pain and sorrow will be no more. And we will someday finally experience true and unaltered bliss and reward beyond anything that we can imagine. Now, the heart of the atheist complaint is that you know, it stems from looking at evil from a temporal point of view, as they must inherently concede that things here are all that there is. So if someone becomes sick and dies, for example, they will look at this as a terrible tragedy. And in truth, they are, you know, if their worldview is correct, then they are right to despair. But for the Christian, while that kind of a loss would hurt, while the absence of those that we love is pain, and while we can be angry and sorrowful about death, we can also look up and past the temporary and through God's eternal lens and understand that life is just the beginning. That when we die, we are stepping through a doorway 
into life everlasting and a reward beyond measure. So we've been given a new perspective on evil that gives us hope. Think of the Apostle Paul and the life that he experienced. He lists all of it for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, Troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind he faced. He was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was mobbed, sleepless nights, facing hunger, exhaustion. What did Paul say about all that? Did he despair? Did he say, it's all pointless and unnecessary, and it's getting in the way of my purpose in life, and it's so intense, and there's so much of it that God must not be real? He said what every Christian can say. Praise God. He said, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Because we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Craig writes, Paul lived life in the perspective of eternity. He understood that the length of this life being finite is literally infinitesimal in comparison with the eternal life we will spend with God. The longer we spend in eternity, the more the sufferings of this life will shrink towards an infinitesimal moment. And that's why Paul called the sufferings of this life a slight momentary affliction. He wasn't being insensitive to the plight of those who suffer horribly in this life. On the contrary, he was one of them. But he saw that those sufferings were simply overwhelmed by the ocean of everlasting joy and glory, which God will give to those who trust him. It may well be that there are evils in the world that serve no earthly good at all, that are entirely gratuitous from a human point of view, but which God permits simply that he might overwhelmingly reward in eternity those who undergo such evils in faith and confidence in God. God has not chosen to leave us in a state of uncertainty, but has revealed himself and his purposes through his word. He has spoken to us and give us understanding and insight that increases, not only increases the probability of his existence in the face of evil, but also equips us to respond well to that evil. Thanks be to God. Now, one more response before we begin wrapping up, and it's linked to what Nate Elkington and Ben Powers shared over the last few weeks. And this really would be the atheist's biggest shortcoming with both the logical and the probabilistic versions of the problem of evil. And it boils down to this. If the atheist does not recognize objective morality, if they don't hold to the reality of objective right and wrong, on what basis do they identify evil in the world in the first place? There's a bit of a dilemma exposed here for them. And I think C.S. Lewis, when he's speaking of his own naturalism in his book, Mere Christianity, puts it very well. He writes, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? 
Of course, I, I could have given up uh, my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too, for the argument depended on saying the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. So what's Lewis saying here? If there's no absolute standard of right and wrong, as most atheists seem to hold, then the atheist actually has no right to use evil in the world against the biblical view of God. Because in the absence of, of moral and ethical absolutes, even very real pain, very real suffering, it can't be objectively wrong. They would just be random aspects of reality that are devoid of any morality and devoid of any ethical consequence. Just random happenings that the atheist just doesn't happen to personally like. That's all they'd be. So, so really, for the sake of their argument, the atheist needs God to exist. They need an objective moral lawgiver, a source of true morality, by which to establish, in the first place, that evil is objectively wrong. If you haven't listened to Ben Power's message on what difference it makes if God exists, I encourage you to do so, because in it, he explains uh, Francis Schaeffer's whole stealing from the upper story analogy, and describes exactly what's happening here, where the atheist is forced to steal from the theistic worldview, the forced to steal from a worldview that actually contains objective values for the sake of their argument. And the funny thing is, that's not so funny, it's more sad, but the argument in the end, their theft in the end, only seems to increase the probability of God's existence. There's an inconsistency with their argument that needs to be addressed. Uh, I like how Craig puts it, so we'll just read what he writes here. If objective values can't exist without God, and objective values do exist, as is evident from the reality of evil, then it follows in a paradoxical way that evil actually serves to increase the probability of God's existence. So, by way of recap, let's look back at the probabilistic problem of evil one more time. The atheist proposes that, one, the extent and depth of evil in the world is so great that it is improbable God could have morally sufficient reasons for permitting it. And two, therefore, given the evil in the world, it's improbable that God exists. We have given a variety of responses to this now. First, that the presence of evil in any quantity is insufficient, insufficient evidence to assess the probability of God's existence, that we need to examine all of the evidence that we have, and when we do, it's clear that the probability of God's existence increases, not decreases. Secondly, that we're not in a good place to judge the probability of God's morally sufficient reasons for allowing evil in any amount. We are too limited and finite in our perspective to be able to make that call definitively, let alone decide he 
doesn't exist because of it. Third, faith in God, faith in the Christian worldview, gives us doctrines that not only show the coexistence of God and evil to be more probable, but they also show us how to properly understand evil, how to respond to it, and knowing the final outcome. And finally, we show that the overall consistency of the atheist problem with evil uh, is, I'm sorry, inconsistent, that their recognition of evil as an objective moral value points to, whether or not they like it, the existence of an objective moral lawgiver. If these arguments are correct, then the existence of God becomes more probable than improbable. And as such, both versions of the intellectual problem of evil fall short of disproving God's existence. As we close this morning, I'd like to offer you a word of encouragement. So yes, we can attest to the good probability of God's existence. Yes, we have a hope for the future. We know the end of evil. But we also recognize that there is still a sharpness and a pain to the suffering that we experience now. There's no denying that, I don't think. But I want to remind you that God is not standing by passively. He is not callously watching you in your suffering. He is active and he is involved with us. He came and he shared in our suffering, enduring the anguish of seeing his son on the cross to overcome all this evil and to restore us to life. So we're not alone. But we are helpless. We are helpless before God. We are stuck and we are drowning in the mire of our rebellion against him. There absolutely is a problem of evil, but it's not the problem that the atheist presents. The true problem of evil is not out there. It's not this abstract thing that somehow hurts the probability of God's existence. The true problem of evil is in us. It's what's in our hearts. It's our choices of sin and rebellion against God. I think Craig puts it very well. He says, the true problem of evil is the problem of our evil. Filled with sin and morally guilty before God, the question we face is not how God can justify himself to us, but how we can be justified before God, before him. How can we be saved from this mire that we're drowning in, from the results of our free choices? And the good news is that we know the answer to that question. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has made the way. And all we need to do is, first of all, humble ourselves. Second of all, recognize that we are part of the problem and repent. Turn away from that rebellion against God and freely receive the justification and the salvation that he offers us through his Son. If you have not considered this before, if you have not humbled yourself, recognized your own doing and repented of it, then I encourage you now is the time to do so. Don't put it off. 
Tomorrow is not guaranteed us. The next hour is not guaranteed us. I'll end with this quote from William Lane Craig. Paradoxically, even though the problem of evil is the greatest objection to the existence of God, at the end of the day, God is the only solution to the problem of evil. If God does not exist, then we are lost without hope in a life filled with gratuitous and unredeemed suffering. God is the final answer to the problem of evil, for he redeems us from evil and takes us into the everlasting joy of an incommensurable good, fellowship with himself. Amen. Would you please stand with me, and we'll close. Paul writes in Romans fifteen thirteen, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and all peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in Christ's name and greet each other in love.